You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Man, I love to worship with you. You sound great this morning. You look good this morning. Uh, God is faithful. Amen. Uh, Take your Bibles and turn with me to John's Gospel, Chapter 2, if you would. Uh, John's Gospel, Chapter 2. I want to say congratulations to you guys that were home alone with the kids this weekend. Uh, you go into the weekend feeling like you're like entering the Hunger Games or something, right? It's like, I can do this. Uh, in fact, I had a life-changing experience uh, on this weekend just a few years ago. My wife was at the women's retreat. My daughter at the time uh, had to have her hair in a side-braided ponytail. If there's anything that strikes fear in this guy's heart anyway, it's like doing the girl's hair. And especially when it's more than just a standard ponytail, right? Well... I learned how to do it on that weekend, right? And so um, it was a life-changing experience for me. No, in all seriousness, uh, this weekend, uh, at least for me, is uh, uh, an annual reminder of how much I truly appreciate uh, my sweet wife and all that she does for us as a family. And I'm so thankful that um, she's had the privilege um, to be away, just recharge and um, do a little relaxing maybe. Uh, being challenged, uh, growing in her relationship with the Lord and with other women. And so um, just grateful for a church that has those opportunities. A um, couple other things real quickly. Uh, let me mention that we are still in the season of giving to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Uh, we typically do that through the month of January. So if you've not had a chance to give uh, to Lottie Moon, uh, let me encourage you to do that. We emphasize three offerings annually. Uh, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering during uh, the holiday season, of course, Uh, For the International Mission Board Um, in the spring, uh, we will have an Easter offering uh, for the North American Mission Board. It's called the Annie Armstrong Easter Offering uh, for missions work all over North America. And then later in the fall, we have our state missions offering, uh, the Reach Texas Offering. And so uh, I encourage you with that. We set a goal this year of $20,000. Maybe we undershot it a bit because uh, your generosity uh, has enabled us as a church family to give $32,000 up to this point or just over that. And so praise the Lord for that. And uh, yeah. It's exciting, and uh, you may not be aware that we are actually a sending church for uh, a missionary family serving uh, in Asia through the International Mission Board, and it enables us uh, to partner with churches all over the world to support uh, a missions force of several thousand people spreading the good news of the gospel. Uh, You probably noticed in the announcement loop this morning some updated images of the work going on over on Colin McKinney Parkway. Uh, Things are going up now, which is exciting. I got the foundation poured last week. Steel's being put up right now, and so uh, it's getting real exciting over there. And uh, here's the thing, though. That's all got to be paid for, okay? So um, uh, that's that's the beauty of all this is God is doing all that through the faithful giving of his people. And some of you have given... Uh, generously to the Joshua Project or the Building Fund or whatever you want to call it for a number of years, and you're continuing to do that. Um, and in today's economy, yeah, you can only imagine that project is about a nine and a half million dollar project. So uh, crazy to think of uh, all that God is doing and will do, and that's just the first phase. And so uh, let me encourage you in that as well. Well, John chapter 2, we're in a sermon series called A Person of Interest. This is a study of the Gospel of John, and so far we've looked at John's purpose statement in John chapter 20. 
Uh, we've looked at his prologue in chapter 1, verses uh, 1 through 18. We've now been introduced to the ministry of John the Baptist, uh, the forerunner of the Messiah, who described himself as one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And while his purpose is not to outline different uh, models or methods of evangelism, I think it's worth noting in light of last week's message, uh, the different means by which the first five disciples uh, were found and brought to faith in Jesus Christ. Their stories uh, highlight the truth that there's no one particular method of evangelism uh, that will be effective for everyone. Uh, because we're all different. And I suspect this morning if I were to ask you to all share your testimonies, uh, while they would be similar in many respects uh, because of the nature of the gospel itself, uh, essentially what you would say is, I at some point in my life turned from my sin to faith in Jesus Christ. I trusted him as my Savior and Lord. The circumstances surrounding that and uh, the events, life events perhaps that brought you to that point in your life, to that moment uh, of faith, uh, maybe it was a crisis uh, in your life, uh, any number of things uh, would look very, very different. Some of us came to faith in Christ at a young age, others of us uh, and when we were a little bit older. But what we see here are really um, these four different means of uh, calling individuals to follow Jesus Christ. There is mass evangelism. Uh, this is where one gifted person, uh, perhaps, called specifically to the task of evangelism, uh, uh, proclaiming the good news to audiences that have not yet received the gift of salvation. Uh, John the Baptist certainly would have been considered uh, an evangelist of the first century. Uh, in more modern-day terms, think Billy Graham and others like him. I know there's a Greg Laurie today, and uh, the Billy Graham Association continues in doing uh, stadium-type events. We call that mass evangelism. Uh, it's interesting, over 30-some years of ministry, how many people's testimonies, uh, their spiritual heritage, somehow, some way, runs back to an event like that. Maybe not on uh, the large scale of a huge stadium event, but maybe an event like um, a D-Now, for example, uh, where someone's sitting in the crowd and they hear uh, a gifted leader, a gifted teacher explain the good news of the gospel. And it's through that event uh, kind of that they come to faith in Christ. And so there's mass evangelism. Then there's personal evangelism. Uh, we kind of unpacked last week how this is uh, perhaps the most effective means for someone to come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's when an individual shares the good news of Jesus Christ with a friend or a loved one. Uh, and, uh, and these are not all necessarily exclusive. In fact, uh, many times people would say, yes, I came to faith in Christ at a stadium event, a crusade event. I, I, I responded to the invitation, but I was invited to that event by a friend. It was through a friendship or a conversation or an, or an acquaintance that I even went to that event in the first place. And so there's personal evangelism. That is uh, in the everyday flow of life, leveraging uh, your spheres of influence for the sake of the gospel, whether it's inviting someone who's a coworker, a neighbor, uh, uh, whatever the case may be. And then there's contact evangelism, similar to personal evangelism. Uh, and that one individual shares the gospel with another. However, the two, in this particular case, may not have established a rapport or a relationship. Uh, we would say these are many times born out of what we would maybe call divine appointments. Um, and that often place us in, in just the right spot at just the right time to be instrumental in leading someone to faith in Christ. I've, I've shared a story from a number of years ago earlier in my ministry 
uh, was in South Texas. It wasn't uncommon uh, to have conversations with Border Patrol agents and things like that. I was leaving the office one day to go make a hospital visit, and a Border Patrol agent in uniform comes walking up to the church, um, and he had tears running down his eyes. And he said, i, I got to talk to a pastor. Well, I knew in that moment that it was not coincidence uh, that he caught me before I got out of the parking lot. And so I said, come on into my office. And we sat down. He began to share some of the circumstances that were happening in his life at that moment. And uh, make a long story short, I had the privilege of leading him to, to faith in Christ there in my office that day. But it was a number of different things that brought him to that point. Uh, but before that day, before that moment, I did not know Greg Brawley. Uh, but it was that day that he uh, prayed and trusted Christ as his Savior. So contact evangelism. And then in, in and among these different methods, uh, obviously, of evangelism, there is word evangelism. Uh, at a mass evangelism event, the word, hopefully, is faithfully proclaimed. Uh, in a personal conversation, in contact conversations, uh, the word is proclaimed. But there's word evangelism. That is the power of the word of God that we should never underestimate. God doesn't have to have me giving some slick presentation of the gospel for someone to come to faith in Christ. And so there's word evangelism. Many people have come to know the Lord merely by reading scripture, recognizing their need for a Savior, trusting Christ as Savior and Lord before ever stepping into a church or an organized church-type event. And so uh, there are actually ministries that have been born out of uh, this belief, uh, this conviction that the word of God uh, in itself is powerful enough uh, to see individuals come to faith in Christ. You think of the Gideons International. Uh, two individuals, I think business leaders, uh, who saw the importance of placing copies of the Word of God in hotel rooms and motel rooms and hospital rooms all over the world uh, for the sake of evangelism. And so we see some of this uh, happening right here in John's Gospel already as these early disciples are called to faith in Jesus Christ. Now today we're moving into chapter 2. Uh, where we find Jesus and his first disciples at a, a wedding at Cana in Galilee. So let's pick it up in verse number 1 of chapter 2. We'll read down through verse number 12. And I hope that you'll follow along as I read. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples when the wine ran out. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother, and his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now, scholars have been discussing the opening lines of this episode in Jesus' ministry for a long time. It says, On the third day, 
Well, the third day in connection with what? It can't be the third day chronologically if you're following the events here in John's gospel uh, and his narrative uh, because four days have already passed. Uh, Let me bring you up to speed. Day one, that's when the religious leaders confronted John the Baptist there in chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. Day two is when John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the Messiah in verses 29 through 34. Day three is when Andrew and John begin following Jesus in verses 35 to 42. And then day four, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel become followers of Jesus in verses 43 through 51, all there in chapter one. Now, you might say, well, what what does it really matter? Why is this significant? Well, I I would say that how we choose to interpret even this opening phrase is really not a small issue in the grand scheme of things. You see, in some ways, it determines how we will interpret the rest of the book. For example, some scholars opt, opt for a purely symbolic interpretation, seeing kind of an, uh, some sort of an ominous link to Christ's resurrection on the third day. Some and, and others would maybe take it the other direction. And so while John does rely heavily on symbolism when telling the story of Jesus, we have to remember that this narrative is not fiction where John can move and alter different facts to suit, uh, suit the point that he's trying to make. He is describing actual historical events. And so we should avoid looking for hidden meanings behind every stroke of his pen. Others are inclined, again, to go to the other extreme and to take such a strictly literal approach that they fail to see the bigger picture. John told the story of Jesus accurately. As a deep thinker, and as a gifted storyteller. But he takes us beneath the surface to appreciate the significance of sometimes seemingly unimportant details. One commentator uh, very astutely writes this. He says, readers should remember that interpreting this book, understanding the purpose of the Gospel of John, ought to be a primary factor. And we should not impose a simplistic newspaper reporting style on a great literary document like this inspired gospel. So here we find Jesus and these first disciples at a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now what happens at a wedding? Uh, We're talking about wedding, a wedding at our house right now. My son Tim, uh, a couple days after Christmas, proposed to his girlfriend, now his fiance Claire, and uh, man, it seems like every other conversation now has to do with a wedding coming up, and uh, it's coming rather quickly. In fact, I think the date of May the 7th has been picked, and so uh, if you're looking at your calendar, you know that that's just about four months away, and already some of you, your eyes are getting bigger, thinking, how in the world? Well, uh, already some important decisions have been made, and, and things are being done, and so it's an exciting time for us. I was talking to, to Griff and Russell Moore uh, the other day. All three of us have weddings coming up, uh, our first wedding. Uh, in our families. And so it's an exciting thing. Well, what happens at a wedding? Besides the things that that quickly come to mind, like teary-eyed parents and grandparents and people sitting in the crowd going, I remember when she was in diapers, or I remember when, you know, all those sorts of things, or little girls sprinkling uh, flower petals down the aisle and vows and rings being exchanged and all of the things that are important and make up uh, what we would say is is a beautiful wedding. Well, simply put, The old order of things passes away and a new reality is ushered in. Two families are essentially joined together. 
Uh, and in a sense, old lives are left behind and a new life is begun. And so when two people become one flesh in the presence of God and their closest friends and their family members, it is a transformation of joy and hope brought about by this loving commitment in a covenant bond. And so it's for that reason, I believe, that Jesus sovereignly used the occasion of a wedding at Cana in Galilee to perform his first sign in the Gospel of John and to manifest his glory to his disciples. Now trust me when I say there is much more going on here than Jesus making sure there was enough wine for some wedding guests. So let's look at it. Let's consider first of all the wedding and the woman. In verses 1 through 5. Now again, back to that phrase, on the third day. I believe that that likely means on the third day after the events uh, of chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. After Jesus determined to go into Galilee. So this wedding takes place uh, chronologically in the the narrative of what's happening here on day 7 in the ministry of Jesus. John is very careful to narrate this week day by day for us, which is also significant given John's opening here. At this wedding, there's a wine problem. Okay, We always have to study scripture, uh, and, and when we do, we should always consider the cultural context uh, in which we find ourselves. Very important uh, in, in faithfully, accurately uh, interpreting scripture. Uh, Jesus comes to this wedding with his first disciples at the end of this first week described in John's gospel. We don't know whose wedding this is. We're not told that. It seems, however, that Mary has some key responsibilities since she takes the lack of wine very personally. So it could be a close family member, maybe someone on Mary's side of the family. I believe John intentionally doesn't tell us whose wedding it is because he wants, again, the focus to be on Jesus. Now, culturally, contextually, understand this. Weddings in ancient Israel were a huge deal. They're a huge deal today. And I will say that in... 30-some years of ministry, if, there, if there's anything that's changed more than anything else, it's probably weddings. Weddings are very different than they used to be. Proposals are very different than they used to be. Uh, I won't go into our story, but just suffice it to say, um, I didn't put nearly as much thought into some of those things as probably I should have back in 1989, okay? And that was important, no doubt. Uh, but like some of you sitting here around my, my age... Uh, our wedding looked fairly, what we considered fairly traditional, okay? We had a white aisle runner. Okay, so maybe you're looking at me like, what in the world is an aisle runner? Okay, well, you, you don't see that hardly anymore. There's just different things about weddings and the customs associated with weddings that look very, very different. Uh, but in Israel, uh, ancient Israel, it was a huge deal. The wedding celebration would often last as long as seven days, if you can imagine, now, that would make sense in light of all the preparation that goes into a wedding. I mean, I kind of felt like, man, it seems like we spent months talking about this and planning for this and everything, and it feels like it's over in like 30 minutes. Seven days wouldn't be uncommon in that day. The bride and the groom were essentially the king and queen and wore crowns and sat at the center of attention. And so for people whose lives were, were very hard and many times had very little money and less freedom, the wedding was the highlight of their lives. It was a chance to be celebrated and to rejoice like no other time in their life. The groom was responsible to provide the wine for the wedding. 
And so running out of wine would be a major social disgrace, a social faux pas. In fact, having a public celebration without wine for all of the guests was considered deeply shameful in that particular culture. And so the fact that the wine was the groom's responsibility likely means that the groom was a close relative of Mary's, perhaps a nephew or a cousin. Uh, Certainly, Mary takes the the lack of wine as a very personal uh, concern, and she relays it to Jesus with with, uh, some urgency, apparently. And so, now some have speculated... Uh, that Jesus and his disciples showed up at, at the wedding uninvited. They were like wedding crashers, and it was a result of their being there uh, that that's the reason why the groom ran out of wine. But uh, John tells us here pretty clearly uh, that Jesus was invited along with his disciples, so I'm not buying that, okay? Uh, now, Jesus' conversation with Mary is pretty surprising, if not shocking, especially when we read it through our cultural lens, Right? She comes to him with a simple but serious problem. They have no wine. And look at Jesus' response. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, by calling his mother woman, Jesus was not using a rude term or being insulting. But this was also not the normal way to address your mom. You see, the problem with Mary's approach is that she was approaching Jesus as his mom, asking her son to help solve the problem. And because Jesus has now entered into his public ministry, he cannot be commanded as a son by his mother anymore. Now he looks only to his heavenly father for direction. He lives to please only the father. And so by rebuffing Mary's motherly request for her son to help, Jesus is free to act as the son of God and to do something beyond what anyone would have expected. Mary herself could not have been expecting Jesus to turn the water into wine. It's not as if Mary came over to Jesus and said, son, I need you to come over here and do some hocus pocus and give us some wine. I mean, that's, that's not what she was thinking in that moment. I'm sure she's thinking more practically, maybe expecting him to gather his disciples, collect some money, go and buy some wine. We can't know for sure, but those who think Jesus rebuked Mary because she wanted him to perform a miracle for selfish reasons, I think are probably reading something into the text that just isn't there. It is interesting, though, to read it through our cultural lens, right? Because I'm sitting here thinking... If my mom would have asked me to do something, and my response was, woman, what does that have to do with me? I probably would have been seeing stars pretty quickly, okay? That that would not have been acceptable. But isn't it interesting that after Mary heard Jesus' response, she turns to the servants, and she says, do whatever he tells you. (laughs) Do whatever he tells you. I believe that Mary is now approaching Jesus as his mother, trying to get him to do something. That's no longer the case now. Now she's placing herself in the position of a disciple, pointing the servants to Jesus and telling them to obey him and not her. There's a lot that we could say about Mary here. But what's clear is that Mary doesn't enjoy some sort of special access to Jesus as his mother. She must come to him in faith as a disciple, 
All four gospel writers make it clear that Mary and the younger brothers of Jesus have no special access, no special standing with Jesus simply because of their familial relationship. We find that in Matthew chapter 12, Mark chapter 3, Luke chapter 8. They all convey this same story of Mary and the brothers of Jesus trying to get him to listen to them and to come home with them. And they all conclude with the same statement by Jesus. He says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. That's family language, of which we're a part. If you've turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, you are adopted into his forever family. And finally, as regards Mary particularly, the last words we hear from her in the New Testament are directing people to Jesus, saying, do whatever he tells you. After the Gospels, Mary is never mentioned again in the New Testament. Many scholars believe even at this point she was already a widow. Joseph had already died. And though she was a believer and part of the early church, she clearly seems to have no special leadership position or special place of honor within the church simply because of her familiar relationship with Jesus. Let's talk secondly about the water and the wine. So turning from Mary uh, and Jesus to the water and the wine, it's vital that we pay attention to every detail in John's account here. He wastes no words and includes only what is important for us to know. And it's interesting that the first thing John tells us about is actually not the water and the wine, but about these jars. These jars. Now, we wouldn't normally refer to a vessel of this size as a jar. Okay, That's the word that's translated here in the English these were, uh, we're told here, there's six stone water jars uh, there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. So these are pretty good sized vessels. The first obvious thing to note is that these are jars for rites of purification, not for drinking. So Jesus specifically chooses these jars and not any of the wine pitchers, which were now empty. And John tells us that there were six of these jars. Now again, this is where I would say we've we got to use some caution. This is an area where people can, can get way out of balance, and they start to try to look for some hidden code in every single thing in Scripture. There have been books that have been published uh, on the subject of numerology, and they try to count the number of words in a particular verse and where it lands as it relates to the verse numbers themselves and all these things that were added years later, and they try to unpack some sort of, some sort of Bible code I think that's probably out of balance. But in a more realistic approach, we would certainly say that numbers are important in Scripture. And the study of numerology and biblical interpretation is certainly significant. There are certain numbers that quickly come to mind. When you think of the number 40, for example, you see that as kind of a recurring theme throughout Scripture. It's a number of testing. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. Uh, you know, you see that kind of number. And so here... And we're told that there were six of these jars. Now, seven is a critically important number in John's gospel and throughout Scripture. Jesus performed seven signs. This is the first of seven signs that we're going to be looking at in John's gospel. He also spoke seven I am statements that we'll be looking at as well. So seven is the number of divine completion. It is prominent in all of John's writings and throughout Scripture. But here we're told that there were six Ceremonial water jars, incomplete. 
In his miracle, Jesus is making a statement about the incompleteness of the Jewish ceremonial law. It is incomplete as a way of salvation, as a way of purification, but there's more than that that's happening here. So let's talk about the water for a moment. Jesus tells the servants to fill the water jars, and we're specifically told that they filled them up to the brim. These jars associated with ceremonial purification laws, purification, were completely filled to the brim before the wine could be drawn out. And in the same way, Jesus had to completely fulfill the ceremonial law in the holiness of his life, in his sacrificial death, in his offering up of himself as our high priest before purification, true purification, and salvation could flow to us. So the fact that this miracle uh, is meant to point us to the cross is not only found in the use of purification jars, but also in Jesus' words to Mary, my hour has not yet come. You'll see that, that kind of terminology used again in Scripture here, many times in fact, very specifically in John's Gospel. When Jesus says, my hour or the hour, he's talking about the cross, He's talking about the laying down of his life as a substitutionary uh, sacrifice. So the full blessings of purification and salvation cannot be poured out yet because Jesus' hour has not yet come. He has not yet laid down his life and paid for the sins of his people. He has not yet purchased our redemption and won our salvation. His hour has not yet come, but he could give a sign that would point them to what he was going to accomplish. Much like we see from the earliest pages of even the Old Testament. So many things, so many types pointing to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The brazen serpent in the wilderness pointing to Jesus. And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. And So we see these kinds of pictures, uh, snapshots for us throughout Scripture. Now let's talk about the wine. Once the water jars of purification are completely filled, the wine could flow. Now what is clear is that the wine that's drawn is of the very best quality. The head waiter, or the the master of the feast, as he's called here, who who had to taste the wine, uh, all of the wine that was being served, naturally thought that the bridegroom had supplied this wine. That was the custom. He was so shocked after he tasted it, that he called the bridegroom over and said to him, he goes, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. In other words, the quality of the wine decreases throughout the event. That's the typical way that it's done. But the wine that Jesus makes here, miraculously makes, is the very best of wine. Shocking even to the master of the feast. Now, let's pause for a moment for a word about wine from the Baptist preacher, okay? Can we do that? (laughs) I want to treat this like it's some kind of elephant in the room that we can't talk about, okay? We're not going to just skirt over this as if it's not significant. Some people have argued, uh, I believe erroneously, uh, that this wine Jesus made was unfermented grape juice, much like Welch's, okay? Historically and culturally, I will say I believe that to be highly unlikely, highly unlikely, Uh, You think about it. In a world before refrigeration, 
It was difficult, if not impossible, to keep wine unfermented, and no one would even try because such wine would spoil. But to speak kind of to the other side, maybe for just a moment, wine in the Bible was almost always uh, served diluted, usually by adding two to four parts water to every part of wine. In other words, the alcohol content of wine in the Bible was probably somewhere between 20 and 30, 35% of what the alcohol content of modern day wine is. Undiluted wine in that day would have been considered unsafe to drink because you could not drink large quantities of it without being intoxicated. So it wasn't served. It would not have been uncommon for Jesus and his disciples to drink multiple glasses of high quality but very diluted wine. It would not be exactly the same as our modern day wine. Now my point here is a rather simple one, I think. The Bible does not condemn drinking wine. I can't make scripture say that. Uh, in fact, the Bible praises God for giving wine to gladden the heart of man in uh, Psalm chapter 105, verse 15. However, the Bible is very clear and repeatedly condemns drunkenness as dangerous and foolish and inappropriate for God's people. Now, that's not the main point of this text, and so we're going to return to that, but uh, that was free of charge this morning, okay? All right, let's look at, thirdly, let's look at the sign, the glory, and the faith as we move to verses 11 and 12. After the steward's commendation of the good wine, John concludes his account of this event by saying this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Jesus' first sign now, there are four different Greek words in the original language used in the New Testament that can be translated miracle. There's the word ergon, which actually is often translated work, is what that means. It, it emphasizes miracles as the works of God. Then there's the word teras, which is the word uh, for wonders. We sometimes say signs and wonders. That word focuses on the miracles of Jesus as wondrous or wonderful displays. Uh, awe-inspiring, mind-boggling. There's different ways that we would uh, translate it into the English language. Then there is the word dunamis, which is uh, the word for power. It's the word from which we get our word dynamite, dunamis power. Uh, And so the word there emphasizes, of course, miracles as demonstrations of great power, uh, the power or the might of God. And then there is the word semeon, which is the word signs. This word emphasizes miracles as signs which point themselves to a deeper truth about God or Christ's kingdom work. Understand this. John consistently uses that last word, Simeon, signs. And in his gospel, Jesus' miracles are always revealing something, teaching something, Pointing us to something. That's why I said at the beginning of the message, this story, this account, is about so much more than Jesus providing some wine to some wedding guests. It's pointing to something. Signs have a message. And the message, if you don't get anything else this morning, please get this. The message of this first sign is this. In his coming hour of suffering and death on the cross, Jesus would fill up in himself the ceremonial law and make purification for the sins of his people. 
He would be our purification. And once full atonement had been made and our sins had been cleansed, the wine of the joy of God's kingdom could flow. We would receive not just purification, but adoption as the children of God, citizenship into the kingdom of God, assurance of the love of God, the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God, the fruit of the Spirit of God, like the fruit of the vine in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. An inheritance in heaven purchased by Jesus Christ and kept by the power of God. That's what this is all about. This miracle reminds me of Jesus' wedding uh, parable of the wedding feast told in Matthew chapter 22. It's a parable. And in that parable, the king throws a wedding banquet for his son. But none of the invited guests, those on the original guest list, can be bothered to show up. They all come up with plausible excuses. So the king sends his servants out to uh, the highways and the hedges, I think it says in the old King James, to gather in the poor and the blind and the lame and the outcast, and he brings them into the feast. But don't miss it. Because what you see, even in the teaching of that parable, is we are all poor and blind and lame, helpless creatures who have nothing of value to offer our king. It's not as if we can strut into the banquet and say, I deserve to be here because I'm somebody. You're not. God not only forgives our sin and cleanses us, he invites us to come to his son's wedding banquet where we sit and feast with the king of the universe as joint heirs with the son of God. That's what this is all about. Manifest glory. John says that in this first sign, Jesus' glory was manifest. In other words, Jesus made known his glory to his disciples. How is Jesus glorious? He's glorious in many ways, but here he shows his glory as the bridegroom who never runs out of wine and whose wine is of the very best quality. Jesus, as a bridegroom, is contrasted here with the poor, humble bridegroom of this village wedding. He could only uh, uh, afford cheap wine, and he ran out of that wine. But Jesus is the bridegroom whose wine is sweet and of the highest quality and which never runs out. The blessings of Jesus' kingdom are freely and fully offered to all. He is the best of all bridegrooms, and he demonstrated his Abundant grace in this wonderful sign. What was the response? John notes that the disciples, upon seeing this sign, believed in him. Remember the thesis statement of John chapter 20? I write these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God. And that by believing in him, you may have eternal life. So that you may believe. This is sign-induced faith, which is real faith. It's faith in response to sight. The disciples saw firsthand Jesus' glory, and so they believed. Later in John chapter 20, we'll eventually get there. 
Jesus will say, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, in the Bible, seeing and believing work as an ever-growing cycle of cause and effect. John explores this repeatedly in his gospel. We're going to see it. Seeing Jesus' glory leads to faith, which leads to more seeing of his glory, which leads to more faith, and so on. But the cycle can also start with faith. Trusting in Jesus leads to seeing his glory by faith, which strengthens our faith and leads us to see more of his glory. It is better, he says in John 20, more blessed to believe and then see. But God is gracious and sometimes gives us a glimpse of his glorious grace, usually through someone else, sparking our faith and getting that cycle going. Isn't it amazing? So I wonder this morning, have you seen? Have you believed? Have your eyes been opened through the word of God, by the spirit of God, so that you can see the glory of Jesus Christ manifested? And can you personally give testimony to that work in your own life? The riches of the kingdom of God, the blessing of adoption and love and peace and freedom as the children of God have been secured by Jesus. And secured by Jesus. That's what John's kind of saying here to us. Come to him. Come to him and drink the wine so good only he can give it. It's the wine of the joy of the kingdom of God. If we could bow our heads for just a moment. I know there may be some here today who would say, Pastor, I'm, I'm not just real familiar with Scripture. I've maybe heard bits and pieces of this account in John chapter 2. I I know it was one of the miracles of Jesus that he turned water into wine, and I've seen the memes and the, the online jokes and all those sorts of things. But there's a much deeper, much more significant meaning here than Jesus making sure that some wedding guests had a glass of wine. This is about manifesting the very glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and expresses for us in such a profound way the beauty of the kingdom of God. Can you say today that you believe? And I'm not using believe there in the sense of some sort of mental assent. I believe that it's going to be a nice day I believe that we're going to have a good week. I'm talking about have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Because if you have turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, then you're described as being a part of the bride of Christ. That's the church. He's the bridegroom. It's an imagery. It's a picture that is often misunderstood. My heart's cry today is that you will be found in a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. 
If you're here this morning and you're on some kind of pathway of self-improvement, self-righteousness, hoping against hope that somehow, some way, you will in the end be good enough to be found acceptable to God. I just got to tell you, God's word is crystal clear. That it doesn't work. It says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. Again, in the parable, we are the poor, the lame, the outcast. So, Father, today we thank you for your word. We thank you for what an amazing, beautiful picture we see here in John chapter 2. I pray that if there's anyone here today that has never trusted you as Savior and Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, by the power of your word, they'd be drawn to you today. Lord, I thank you that you have not saved us to simply then fend for ourselves as we live in this broken, sinful world. You have empowered us by your indwelling Holy Spirit to live out the life that you desire us to have a life that's described later here in John's gospel as abundant life. How we thank you for that today. And I pray that everyone in this room, everyone watching online can experience and is experiencing that abundant life in Jesus Christ. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.